Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Neil Dykeman, co-founder of Energy Transition Ventures. Now, Energy Transition Ventures is an investment group. They are funding six major pillars of the energy transition. I am going to let Neil explain it, though. So I'm just going to stop talking now. Neil... Thank you for joining us today on the show. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and a little information about Energy Transition Ventures. Not a problem, Joe. Now, but before we start, you got a PhD on your business car here. What's your PhD in? My PhD is technically in geophysics. So Technically in geophysics or like actually in geophysics? It is in geophysics. I say technically because when you hear geophysics, everybody's mind goes to seismic. I did thermal numerical modeling. So I am not a seismic modeler or a seismic processor. I can interpret seismic, but I am not a seismologist. I see. I see. One of the last deals that I did when I was, my first one deals I did when I was shell was ocean bottom seismic. I am obsessed with seismic. That stuff is awesome. But I am, I'm, I'm not a PhD and I'm certainly not a geophysicist. I was a history major who fell into investment banking and then managed to get myself into venture capital in the dot-com boom, and tried to learn something useful. That's very exciting. And where does, so you are a historian and you fell into inve- into venture banking through that. Well, to, to be fair, yeah, I was going to go to law school and got burned out. Then I didn't have a job. I take an astronomy course at A&M in the summer with my last scholarship stipend. Yeah. And finally, desperate investment bank, Bankers Trust, which was a really cool place to work, but they'd screwed up their hiring and I had screwed up my like going and get a job thing. And so we were match made in heaven. And so they had a headhunter send him up there and he interviewed me at a, at a, a squash court and um, uh, sent me over. I managed to survive the interviews, got through all the investment banking interviews, not knowing that M&A stood for mergers and acquisitions. Don't know how I survived. They were really desperate. So they hired me. And so then I learned how to do reservoir models and service and supply and all that, leverage lending. It was an awesome place. Deutsche Bank bought it, and well, that wasn't going to go so well. So I got lucky. I was trying to avoid business school and managed to get a former Alex Brown partner you who know, was out in the Bay Area running a private equity fund to hire me to come you know, be their new little associate out in California doing manufacturing turnarounds. Mm-hmm. And I did this at the height of the dot-com boom, which was monumentally stupid as hell. Right? You get out there, I'm in a tube bending plant, food manufacturing, and everybody else around is doing dot-com stuff. I can't spell dot-com stuff. I'm like, you know, I got to go back to Texas. I was going to go buy myself a valve service company, or I got to get into tech. And then I got to spend all my time outside. Otherwise, you can't justify living in the Bay Area even back then. So I jumped to a firm behind yellowpages.com. 
I didn't know anything about Venture, but yellowpages.com sounded like something I should have heard of. Yeah, one of my friends from Houston was the headhunter who was kind of helping, yeah, helping them out, and so he'd introduced me over, and they had Adelaide Stevenson on their board, and I'd heard Adelaide Stevenson, and so this sounded like this couldn't be a complete scam. Again, I didn't know anything about Venture, so I didn't know how to evaluate anything, and I showed up in that place the day NASDAQ fell the first time. So luckily, I'd learned to do turnarounds and, and stuff, and I'd learned to do workouts and all that, and which is because went through 1998 in the oil patch, and um, WTI going down $10 a barrel, and every, everything that flowed a barrel was losing money. Yeah, and so I got to do all sorts of fun m a stuff, and after the tech wreck, my boss there and I pulled the team, spun out, created a firm called Jane Capital. I was 24 years old. My grandmother told me, congratulations, y'all going to make money in four years. I'm like, nah, grandma, nah, grandma, we're going to make money now. I'm, I'm, we're good. Nope, grandma was right. It, you know, first year writing checks, finally start making a little bit of money, didn't start making real money to about year four. But um, we started out with Macquarie Bank as our as our first uh, yeah, kind of partner, we were they had a tech fund. We were advisor to that tech fund, and then we had this tiny little company. It was a yeah kind of, would have been called Clean Tech a few years later, but Clean Tech as a term did not exist yet. That was doing green shielding for electronic devices, and we were a seed investor in there and helped eventually float them up on uh, on AIM, one of the first U.S. to AIM clean tech deals. That made us think we were smart. So we went and found more corporate venture people to teach and tell what to do and help them run their funds, and we found more startups we could write little checks into. And we ended up with several IPOs out of that portfolio in clean tech, and so we founded six, seven companies out of there. I held every job in a startup badly. I even ran engineering. <laughs> you imagine a history major running engineering? If we got one of my software engineers on right now, she'd just shake her head and laugh, but... I was in charge for a very brief period of time there. We got our product out, uh, software Carbon IT, to go deliver to the UNFCCC yeah, up for um, uh, the Conference of the Parties at Poznan. That really fun exercise. Back hot again. We've looked at like five deals that I swear to God, had they not abandoned my patents, they'd be sitting right athwart our main claims. Yeah, wow. 14 years later. The world just comes around. So then but the, we did a little bit of software, but to be honest, a lot of the work that we did was, was hardware. Superconductors, yeah, grid stability. Last company we founded out of there was um, a company called SmartWires. You're doing power flow control for the transmission grid. Basically, you rewrite the grid so you can make electron A go whatever path you want. Yeah, it came out of a, a Georgia Tech technology that we had licensed and done the spin out out of. Um, and so that finally got home about 2010, home being Houston, where I'm from. And uh, walked around, figured out the startup scene here was completely dead, and I had probably screwed up my entire career. <laughs> yeah. So eventually got uh, uh, caught at a weak moment by Royal Dutch Shell. We'd gone on to help a bunch of energy companies, you know, launch their corporate venture and alternative energy arms. By the way, we called it alternative energy back then because it's more expensive than conventional energy. Nobody uses the term anymore because it's cheaper than conventional energy. energy mm -hmm. And uh, solar and wind are kicking the ever-living crap out of gas on an economic basis these days. But back then, you called it an alternative energy group. And uh, so, yeah, I got caught in a weak moment by Royal Dutch Shell. I was advising them, yeah, and ended up getting sucked in to help eat my own killing and launch the, what they, we called Stevie Fund 2, yeah, in um, uh, 2013 or so to help launch that fund, get it up off the ground and running. Yeah, managed to burn myself out of that and then didn't talk to anybody in a startup or tech for two years. Um, took a cathartic little break, ran for U.S. Senate. I was the Libertarian nominee against Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke. I got my ass kicked, as you can imagine, because third parties get their ass kicked. 
but uh, we made them feel it. Yeah, um, we have some really, really fun stories over a beer that should not go on a podcast about that. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, and then he ended up, um, yeah, having a good time there. And finally, about a year ago, two years ago now, um, right before the pandemic was starting, we were working on a fund with my par- uh, uh, friend of mine, yeah, Craig Lawrence. I've been trying to do business with Craig for well, 2008. He was the clean tech head for Excel Partners back in the day when they were trying to get mm. into clean tech. I was blogging. And I was clean tech blog, which at the time was a pretty big blog. And um, uh, Craig was trying to come blog for me. And I, I didn't let him blog for me. Probably should have, but I didn't let him. Yeah. And uh, anyway, Craig claims to have used one of my really snarky articles on why venture capitalists in the Valley are doing stupid things in energy because they can't spell energy. I think that one was titled Welcome to Refining Freshmen. Yeah. Hmm. And um, use that to inform the Excel thesis. They did exactly two deals, Sunrun and O-Power like two of the biggest category killers in the entire sector. So I thought Craig was brilliant. He went to UT, but, you know, we forgive him that. Um, and so I've been trying to do business with him for years. And he calls up and he says, you know what? I've got a partner out in Korea that is looking to get in corporate venture. And I said, I'm not, I'm not doing corporate venture again. He says, no, 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 let's, let's just come talk to me and help him. And so we spent some time with him and it ends up being the GS Group. Yeah, the GS Group has a big, massive refinery with Chevron, about 800,000 barrels a day, has a massive construction company, huge retail business, and a bunch of power plants, really cool company. And the family decided they were going to go yeah, get yeah, beyond fossil. They were going to get international and um, they were going to use tech to do it. And uh, so we were kind of the squaring of the circle. We helped them get that fund up and running. They anchored our fund. We got, and the pandemic slowed us down a little, but we got launched about January last year. So we're here in Houston, turned our fund on, started doing deals, scrabbling to find entrepreneurs we liked, people that can put up with us, which might be harder than finding entrepreneurs we liked. Yeah, and off to the races. And so that that fund that you're talking about is Energy Transition Ventures. Energy Transition Ventures. We picked it as a term of art because remember back in the day we called this stuff clean tech. Clean tech is a term, by the way, was coined by a couple media companies trying to set up conferences to help venture capitalists sell stock and venture capital funds to limited partners. Awesome story. I wrote the history of that about 10 or 12 years ago. You should go look it up. It's what is clean tech? Just go Google mm-hmm. that with the word Dykeman attached. It'll, it'll pop up. Um, so, but, but nobody uses that term anymore. It's kind, of, it's kind of died off. And, you know, there's always been like the term wars, right? Back in the day, it was clean tech versus green tech because Kleiner Perkins and a few other funds didn't want to be associated with clean tech. So they wanted their own term. So they were trying to popularize green tech. That didn't work out. That term died off. And before that, you'd call it energy tech. We're in kind of wave like five or six on this stuff. Energy tech would have come from the, uh, yeah, from the Enron days who helped launch a lot more things in this sector than people are ever going to give them credit for. Yeah. But the new term is energy transition. And that term was actually popularized by, well, in, yeah, um, Kind of 2017, 2018 time frame. Before that, doesn't show up. You can go look at the web searches. There's nothing. Yeah, got coined in 2012. Yeah, um, by uh, yeah, largely by a guy by the name of John Wellinghoff, who's a former FERC chair, a friend of mine. John's an awesome guy, and he was working when he was at FERC. He was trying to work on some of this stuff, and it helped set up the Energy Transition Forum. And that's really, you can go back, look at the literature. That is literally the first use of that term as beyond something from a generic, right? Mm-hmm. Energy transition as a term has been around for a long time in the academic literature. You know, it's an energy transition, the energy transition referring to we are shifting off a of fossil onto non-fossil, you know, low-carbon stuff for climate change purposes as a term of art, less than a decade old. 
and nobody used it until about 2017-18. We've actually got a journal paper that I've got written and supposed to come out in a journal here sooner or later as soon as the journal gets kind of back up and running. That's kind of the history of the term. Um, so we picked energy transition ventures as a bit of a term of art of where the world was going, and we started just early enough that nobody got in the domain and nobody filed paperwork on it. So there's a number of energy transition fun type name things that have popped up right after we got launched. Mm -hmm. So we're looking real smart, but it is a bit of a mouthful. And we probably should have called the, the, the company something like simpler to, to say and not just shorten the life to ETV. That's a really interesting point on the terminology and really the it's essentially a marketing ploy of like, how do you how do you say what you are? in a way that everybody gets excited and gets hyped about it and is, and wants to participate. And if I'm hearing you correctly and, and hearing what you're saying, so far, clean tech was not necessarily something that people really bought into. Oh, oh, they did. It was big, right? Really big. It was essentially an investment asset class term. Yeah. Hmm. So no startups don't identify as a clean tech startup. They didn't identify as a solar startup or an EV startup or a yeah. carbon IT startup or something like that. Right. So clean tech was the term that the investors used. Yeah. And was real hot for a long, long time. And it's still you know, quite a well used term. There's a, a whole class of investors now that want to call it climate tech and pretend it's not clean tech. It's all the same companies. It's all the same people. They just change the name every few years. Energy transition's different. Yes, whereas clean tech is an investment asset class, energy transition really is a term that has come to, to, to encapsulate the um, industry shift, right? And none of these are industries. An industry is hydrogen, the hydrogen industry, yeah. or the CCS industry, or the fuel cell industry, or the wind industry. Yeah, energy transition isn't an investment class term like clean tech was, it's more a boardroom term. So what we think, yeah, and this is one of my posits in our little little journal paper, we think that the term really began to come into its own when, yeah, uh, kind of 2017, 18 timeframe, when boards were trying to figure out, all right, I got to deal with GHGs, right? I got to have a strategy for that. And I've got disruptive threats coming because of this. And um, uh, I, I need to run a strategy, so what am I what am I going to call my strategy? And um, as I said, uh, so John had been kind of the first person to coin the term. It, but about the 2017 16 time frame, um, actually a podcast, Chris Nelder, who written some clean tech books back in the day. He was doing the energy transition podcasts uh, with RMI, working with RMI on some stuff. RMI started using the term. DNV put out one of their first um, yeah uh, energy transition outlooks. So that's kind of only four or five years ago. And then about the 2019 time frame, we're getting started. It's beginning to pick up 2020 in the middle pandemic it hits it just explodes and all of a sudden the term starts to outpace older terms like clean tech hmm. we think it's because boardrooms are finally trying to adopt a strategy and it's a beautiful term it sounds just slow enough so that i can still get a strategy that won't get my shareholders mad at me that i'm going to lose money and disrupt my own business but just you know climaty enough so that i won't get yelled at by the ngos for not you know, having having a climate focused hmm. agenda yeah I'm not sure if that's true, but that's just kind of what it feels like. So I I appreciate that that interpretation of the term that it is a it's a transition and it's a slow, not not necessarily uncomfortable pace. And and talking to 
a venture capitalist like yourself, I think it one of the big questions that I've always had and one of the things that always gets brought up when it comes to investments and startups and from my space being geothermal, the the valley of, of funding death. There is basically. no valley of funding death. <laughs> so it, it's a it's I guess thinking about transition slow pace with companies who oh, want oh, it's, to it's not a slow pace that's just what they want people want to pretend it is mm. it is happening at lightning speed yeah if you go look back at the curves of adoption of stuff right um basically all the predictive models missed them solar wind etc and so if you think about the um the eia and the iea you know models yeah. of energy kind of um, supply and demand the, the people that are really doing a full good model, right? They got they got both sides and they're able to kind of work out price models and all that. What they're really doing is they're taking a loading order of how much this stuff costs per unit of capex of some sort. And then they're saying, therefore, in each year, and they're saying, therefore, that's how much is going to get built. And then they roll that forward. It's kind of a deterministic model. I mean, you're the mm-hmm. numbers guy. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just a history major. But um, the problem is that doesn't take into account disruption. Because what was happening is renewables would get driven by either quotas, like, oh, there's an RPS, we got to build this, yeah. or a um, uh, or they'd get driven by a customer saying, oh, I want that one, not this one. And so they were outpacing these deterministic models. Every single one missed it. And you look back about 2012, 2013, we did a study for a major oil company and uh, right before I joined Shell. And um, not this study was not for Shell, this for another one. And um, uh, we told them by 2017, the world has changed. By 2017, the, the price curves have crossed clearly and renewables are cheaper than fossil. Hmm. They, they told me I was crackers. Yeah, they didn't want to believe it, but it was true. That was somewhere in that 2016, 2018, depending on your market. And you can kind of see it coming. Um, and so that's the real thing that started to change is this is no longer just a government-driven thing, all of a sudden the economics have flipped. Because back in the day, remember, we called it alternative energy because it's more expensive than conventional. Yeah, and it's a little bit of a, you know, oh, it's just that other small stuff, right? But now the growth curves have always looked big. The base was small, so the absolute numbers were a little were a little, a little small. Um, yeah, but the costs were high. And however, since that time, back in the day, when Craig and I were investing the first time, it was all about the policy, stupid. If you don't have a policy framework big enough to make your company, you don't invest in the deal. You have people who made money or are the ones who invested before the policy hit or invested on the policy framework curve and kind of bet when other people weren't. People who were trying to create disruptive technology were getting their heads handed to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, today, the world has flipped. Doesn't matter what Washington does. Doesn't matter what the policy is. The economics have flipped. And if you don't get on the bandwagon, we're putting in solar and wind all over this world, not because you know some government tells you to, not because an NGO wants it, not even because the customers want it, because it is cheaper. Only reason you put gas on your grid is if you cannot get solar on that grid, because it is cheaper. You can run the whole plant for less than you can buy the gas for, even in Texas. Just imagine if you're facing LNG in Europe. Absolutely. You cram as much renewables on there as you can. We are sitting in a world where you know, we've got call it, uh, what, 200 gigawatts of manufacturing capacity of PV per year coming online, that's headed to 1,000 gigs. Hell, the whole U.S. grid's only 1,000 gigs. Yeah, so by 2030, we're going to be able to build the grid by power in every year as a globe. 
the U.S. grid, and we're going to be able to build the grid, the, even the U.S. grid, by energy every, say, 30 months? Well, hmm. I mean, by 20, 2030, 2033, we build the whole U.S. grid, just in solar, if we wanted to. And what do you do after that? Europe, Africa, Asia, etc. Batteries are the same way. You know, we've got enough batteries to basically come in online by 2030 to store every electron we're ever going to make. Yeah, that manufacturing capacity is still spinning up. Some of it, it's, it's big, but it's not that big yet. And it's all hidden because it's all going into cars, you know, on, sitting on wheels somewhere, or it's going into China. So it's still a little hidden in the bigger energy mix. And it's on the front part of that exponential growth curve. But the FID on the factories to build the equipment has already been taken. They've already been announced. The plans are in the works. And the cost curves, what do you think happens in solar when you go up another 5x in, uh, um, in, in, in manufacturing scale? You think that cost's going to stay the same? Just because the prices are bouncing around because we've got a little bit of supply chain issues running around doesn't mean the costs aren't continuing to fall. We saw this in 2008. Caught VCs left, right, and center. It's catching everybody again. The cost curves do not have a floor on them that we can see yet. The prices are all over the map. We think energy transition is driving price volatility from hell, but the cost curves, they're still only going in one direction. So this is all very interesting stuff. I think the with what you're talking about, to summarize that, that statement, there is going to be more production capacity for the solar panels and the wind turbines and, and batteries. batteries. Those are big ones, yeah. In, big order, to, in order to fully fully supply the grid 2030 to 2040 is going to be a really interesting time in shifts in energy supply so in that time frame once we start getting that there are two major questions that i have for you and and in your in your venture group this you're looking at all these big major pillars the two things that I'm I'm curious about are one the raw material supply and then two oh yeah that part sucks <laughs> we get so you'll answer that one first. And then the second one is the grid stability. So that part's not a problem. It's just idiot policymakers. So let's, <laughs> let's cover the raw materials first. Look, Where are we going to get them all for that? There's plenty of raw materials. Refining capacity, mining capacity, that's going to kick our butt. Right, uh, and we but we saw this in solar. These are not new things. We're having you know we're having energy supply crises now because there's not enough refining capacity relative to the product supply that's coming in. Or there's plenty of resource, but not enough reserve. Yeah, or not enough you know, production coming online because the capex hadn't been spent and there's lead times. And and you know as well as I do, in anything that touches the energy sector, there's lead times, and those lead times are not short. You want to bring on a platform deep water? Yeah. Well, Come on, man! You're looking at a decade, yeah, right? Yeah, and that's maybe an outlier, but that's not, yeah, it's directionally true of everything. So, same in, in for example, yeah, batteries, lithium or cobalt or pick your iridium, pick your favorite, right? There's plenty of resource running around this planet to supply what's there. My current mining and refining capacity? Oh no, we're definitely short that. Right. Um, so a lot of the spin-ups are happening, but some of those spin-ups have a lot longer lead time than this module manufacturing capacity, for example. But we saw that in solar before. Do you know why the Chinese solar manufacturers own everything today in the, in the manufacturing world? It's because back in the day when the oil companies owned it all, when, when it, was, it was Shell and BP and um, uh, Chevron and a few others yeah, that had, had the bulk of the capacity, back in the day, yeah, the, uh, uh, 
the, the cost structures were, were looking a little funny. Like, remember, costs continued to decline, but prices were you know, wobbling because we basically used up all the silicon from the waste silicon, and somebody needs to go make more silicon. Hmm. Well, okay, you can refine silicon. It's not hard, right? But you got to go build a silicon refiner, and you got to go build the ingots and the wafer cutters and all the rest of it. It's money. And nobody is stupid enough to do that if you don't give them a contract for it. It's like, oh, I'm going to go build an oil refinery, but... I have no demand. Well, of course you're going to have demand. You don't build that. You don't build LNG yeah, in a spot. Well, some people do, but they, they haven't done so well. Yeah, you build LNG when you've got an offtake. So the yeah. same thing with silicon refiners. Like, give me a damn offtake. And the big guys are like, I, I don't, the, the Japanese companies and the oil majors are like, I, I don't think we're going to go out, give you a 10-year take or pay contracted insane prices. For, I don't think so. We don't think the demand is there. And a bunch of Chinese companies are like, you know what? I'm judgment-proof. It's blood from a turnip. You know, what if I go bust? It doesn't matter. Yeah, I'll sign up to a 10-year take-or-pay with your refinery. And all of a sudden, poof, in 36 months, the market share is flipped. Wow. Right? Um, and, uh, of course, there's a lot of Chinese policy and, and some money going in on the back end to support that. But what really happened was the incumbents refused to go long when the market was exploding against the German feed-in tariffs and some of the European feed-in tariffs and the U.S. RPSs. And so they lost the market share. Right? Because and then a bunch of venture capitalists this time are like, oh, this is you know prices of modules are high, silicon is high. You know what? We're going to invest in concentrated solar and we're going to invest in solar thermal because PV can't get there. It's the modules too thick. You know the um, the cost structures aren't right. No, 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 no. Yeah, if we're we're sitting at what thirty three cents a watt for manufacturing on sil on silicon module now. Yeah, people are talking about heading it down well into the teens, and they're not crackers. For that, for that price, right? There were the big players were making money on single-digit GPs a few years back. This industry got lean and mean, and it was all factory scale. Back in the day, 50, 20 or 50 megawatts was a massive solar factory. Today, you can't even, that's not even a toy pilot line. The R&D line is bigger than that. It's multi, multi, multi gigs. Batteries fall on the same thing. Well, at that kind of manufacturing scale, the technology doesn't matter as much because it's manufacturing maturity and scale that helps you remove the, the, the costs out. Yeah, and we're seeing the same thing in this material stuff going forward. Yeah, you want to make, I mean, lithium, if you think about lithium-ion batteries didn't start off in cars, it started off in other things and in electronic devices and stuff, but those aren't very much volume. Yeah, then Tesla yeah. comes around and says, I'm going to build a whole car out of these things. Yeah, I have to go, I'm going to have to build a battery factory to supply that, but I'm going to build a whole car. I'm going to pack that car full of batteries, five times as many batteries as was sitting in the Nissan Leaf. Well, that means Nissan's got to sell five times as many cars to move down the cost curve of battery scale compared to Tesla. Well, they're not selling five times as many cars. Yeah, no. and so the scale changes things. We're, going to, we're seeing the same thing in raw materials. You go to the Salton Sea in California, Bolivia, pick your favorite one of the big massive resource areas for lithium. There's plenty of it out there. Much of it is not sitting in a place we want to go be, be building stuff, but hey, that's energy. That's been energy life for 100 years. The energy sector knows how to handle that. So yeah, are we going to have a problem in 2040 now? Are we going to have a problem in 2028? Oh yeah. Yeah, so one of our theses, we're seeing this across energy and energy transition. Volatility of price is to hell. If you're a trader, you're going to love the next decade, right? Um, yeah, you're a refiner or a, yeah, or a miner, you're going to love the next decade. But the march of progress in this case is scale and cost down. 
Not because the technology is fundamentally changing. We don't need any more technology to rewrite the world. We haven't for five years. If we get some, great. Yeah, the technologies that are winning today, we could, I could build them for you in 2006. I just couldn't make them quite as good, and I wasn't getting the scale to make them quite as cheap. But in 2006, if you'd said, Neil, I need, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy five gigawatts of solar modules from you. Here's the guaranteed prompt. Uh, contract, and here's the, the declining price curve that you got to meet. I say five gigawatts, okay, I can spend some serious money, I can solve a lot of problems. Yeah, the next one coming down the pike, of course, is, is hydrogen. Yeah, yeah, they're like, we're invested in a hydrogen company called Omium doing you know, green electrolysis. We've got a two gig per year factory spinning up in India right now. Yeah, um, this is the some of the technical guys that, that uh, yeah, cracked the bloom box that had gone and started a company to go do green hydrogen from PIM electrolyzers. PIM electrolyzers, I was working on that with a company up in College Station called Lintec 2003, 2005. The technology is not a lot different. Yeah. We've matured a lot. Back then, we were talking about a 10 kilowatt unit and making like 20 megawatts a year at most. Now we're talking, Omium's like, yeah, two gigs. That's the start, right? Hmm. Or multiple orders of magnitude bigger. So you're seeing that across every step here. So I, I don't want you to think we don't have material supply problems. We do. But I think you should think about them as supply chain and refining problems like we would in the oil patch, not as fundamental problems. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's all these silly journalists mixing up reserves and resources. There's yeah. plenty of resource, and when the price is high, resource becomes reserve. When the price is low, reserve's an economic term. Yeah? And there's plenty of ability to refine, but the capacity has to be built and turned on. And it's got to be built for that process in the right spots. So the supply-demand yeah, becomes a much more regional and volatile question yeah, that makes a bunch of dumb journalists and dumb venture capitalists think there's a fundamental problem. There's not. There's yeah, a bunch of economic problems that a bajillion people are out solving right now and a bajillion dollars is out trying to solve before the government decided to drop half a trillion dollars on the sector. Yep. Very interesting. And do, do you agree or disagree? I think that they're so I'm not a I'm not a mining engineer but you're a geothermal or a mining guy. geologist. Yeah. Okay, so and, I'll ask you a question. I'll ask you a question. Yeah. Um do we have enough geothermal to power the world, resource wise? Resource. We, yes. Okay. We do. All right. Why is geothermal not powering everything right now? Because of cost. Okay. How do you fix that problem? By making it cheaper. All right. When you make it cheaper, all those resources become geothermal reserve. Yep. And you can actually build projects. But if, if I told you we have to power all the energy in the world on geothermal, can we do it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. The same is true of all this stuff. We are not resource constrained. Hell, the glass company I spun out of Shell, this was technology Royal Dutch had developed back when we thought peak oil was going to be a problem to build a refinery underground in oil shale. You can make that completely carbon free if you want. Absolutely carbon free with a simple cycle. Wind and solar, electrical resistive heaters, which is what we were making. You cook the ground, produce, you know, basically diesel straight up the well bore. Yeah, you run it through a solid oxide fuel cell. You, uh, you, uh, you strip off the CO2, run a CO2 through electrolyzers like our latest little baby, which is making CO2 to products, to fuels and, and plastics. Right? And power that with the sun and the wind. And you, you got no CO2 in this cycle. It's cheaper than deep water. Yeah. 
going to take several billion dollars to do it. And there's enough oil shale to power us to the moon and back 50 times. Hmm. Right? The same is true of lithium, same is true of geothermal. We are not resource constrained. As, as my partner Craig likes to say, there's a really big fusion reactor up in the sky that's taking care of things. Our challenge is a bit of a processing and energy movement challenge and conversion problem, but it's not a resource problem. Hell, we, uh, we, there's this, uh, a bunch of cool little startups. They're using the night sky to dump heat to, just like the Persians did a thousand years ago, right? We got the biggest heat sink in the world and a fusion reactor, and then we have a whole bunch of geothermal underneath, and that fusion reactor is creating wind and tides and you know, biomass and all sorts of things that you want. Some of these are a lot cheaper to deliver than others. Yeah, yep. Some of them are much easier to handle conversion on those. We, we tend to like electricity because... Electricity is kind of the ultimate flex fuel. It really doesn't care how you make it, and it's going to do what it's going to do in that engine or that electrical device on the other side, regardless of whether it was made from yeah, burning dead cats in a fluidized bed or from geothermal or from solar. It doesn't care. It's an electron. You know, once you get it there, but now you've got a distribution problem. So that last company I found out of Chain Capital called SmartWires, we were working on that problem because the problem with our grid today is... Um, well, okay, you're, you're not a refinery guy because, you know, you, you're one of those downhole guys. Yep. But think about trying to run a refinery if you had no valves, no tanks, and no gauges. Could you do it? I think you'd make it about a week before it exploded. Well, it That's might explode. Guess. I think you could do it. It's just going to be a very large and efficient refinery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's how we run our grid. Right? The batteries are like the storage tanks, right? Yep. So we're beginning to put those on, right? We're beginning to do things like, oh, how much power is flowing through that line? Dynamic line rating. But that stuff's, this, the, EPRI was putting out reports on this stuff 20, 30, 40 years ago. DOE's been at work. These are not new problems. The technologies aren't even new. So our technology was a fax system, you know? And what these, so this, it's, it's flexible AC, right? Yeah. So what we're doing is basically shoving impedance into a conductor. Well, you do that, you know, the, the, the little electron goes the path of least resistance. So it changes its course, right? Well, what if you can adjust the impedance and down by you pushing a button? Oh, okay, now the electron can travel whatever path you want it to. So now all this congestion, shift, this congestion problems disappear, and you can literally make virtual transmission capacity for hmm. one to two orders of magnitude less than a transmission line. Wow. You can do that at your distribution grid. Now, the tech can be a bit pricey. It took our guys some substantial number of years to get it down. The product those guys are building today, yeah, they, they had a little presentation out, was 600 times yeah, better yeah, performance per unit than we were getting in our 2010 devices. Okay. Right? Um, they've deployed that everywhere but everywhere but the U.S. Well, we started in the U.S. We haven't sold, they haven't sold anything here in years because we got PUCs that, well, hell, yeah. the rate case to put it in will cost more than the equipment. Hmm. Right? So if we want to solve grid problems, not an issue. The technology is there. You just go to the TND engineers and you say, look, I'm telling you, man, you actually have budget this time and you have to solve the problem and ignore the regulator. And we've got no problems. We can stuff all the renewables on we want. We can manage intermittency in fun new ways. Hell, you don't even need as much storage if you can rewrite the grid. Yeah. So it depends how expensive you want energy to be, cheap or, or, or expensive. We can have it either way. Very interesting. And I think that, so the distribution question 
and the way that you're explaining it with basically basically telling the electrons where to go, where where there currently electrons is not fun. not more supply essentially is what what it sounds like to me. It it's definitely I think that is one of those major pillars that as you as you point out, we're we're using a transmission system that was built basically with the country and and, and for Coal plants. And four coal plants, right? yes. Coal plants and load in certain spots. Well, yeah. now our generation not coming from the same spots. Yeah, so yeah, now our load isn't, Our demand isn't in the same spots. Yeah. But some of those spines still are. Or yeah. as as um, as one guy put to me, I'll, I, I won't name him, though he would probably love to, love to me to tell the story. Yeah. So you go plug a router into the internet, and it doesn't break the internet. It just plugs in and works. You know, you go put a server on, it just works, right? If you want to touch... That grid, you got to go get a grid study to make sure their grid won't break. Well, what idiot designed a grid that breaks when you touch it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a little bit more challenging than telecom, but it's not a fundamentally different problem. Or as another friend of mine who was a CTO of a utility used to say, yeah, so how come the meter on your house isn't just some software on, your, on my customer's PC? And then his engineers would give him like chapter and verse and why that was not possible. Well, of course it's possible. Yeah, and and we spent billions on smart meter rollouts that are you know really yeah. all you really need is code on is code on a PC. Yep. Right. So we 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 do everything the way we've done it because of building codes. Yeah. Um. Uh, public utility commissions, public policy, legacy product, all of that. We don't have to do it this way. We chose to. If we want a better grid, if we want a decarbonized supply fuel supply, and we want to do it at scale, everything's on the table. And it's just not as expensive to rewrite as people think. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot there. I think more than we have time for. Because Aww. I think it there's definitely a lot of a lot of these different ideas about essentially about the um about the legacy system that we have and transitioning that legacy system into a more digital world and a more distributed world, which I'm sure that yeah, we like distributed generation. The central stuff's for the birds. Yeah, so we've really only talked about a few a few of those topics in the pillars of energy transition. So now we're going to talk about startup funding, or are we going to talk about geothermal? What's next? I I want to talk about startup funding, not geothermal. You you get a chance to ask me questions about geothermal okay. at the end. All right, but, all right. You're obviously very excited. You see the solutions that can be done. And oh, we you fund, see we're them, funding them. And you're funding the solutions that can be done. So oh, yeah, our, our little and, baby's doing great. And we're earlier, earlier you said that there is no no valley of funding no, death. There's enough can there's more cash than God in this sector. <laughs> so so why or where are startups failing, so to speak? Who says that, they're failing? The ones that can't get the funding, the ones that do that, they can't scale up and grow. Dude, Joe, this is startup plan. This is startup plan to you. It is rough and tumble. Up or out, root hog or die. Pick your favorite little phrase, right? There's an old saying that um, there's enough money in Texas to fund all the good oil deals, which was code for if you're not in Texas and somebody's selling you an oil well, yeah, it's a bad deal. Don't touch it. They've already tried to sell it to the Texans who've turned it down. And that kind of applies to this sector. There's enough money to fund every good energy transition, every good clean tech deal, every good startup on the planet, and a lot of bad ones. 
right? Um, one of the neat things that is different than from 14 years ago. 14 years ago, this wasn't true. There was a real valley of death in clean tech. Maybe not in some other tech sectors, but certainly in clean tech, right? There was no growth funding. There was no IPO market at all. There was no project finance. That stuff all had to get invented, the funds created, you know, the, the capital pulled in. Today, man, only, only problem is making enough new companies to go sell to people that want growth, do growth funding and IPOs and project finance. There's plenty of capital. We don't have enough good companies, right? Mm -hmm. Good companies are hard. Technology in our sectors is cheap, relatively speaking. There's a lot of better ways to skin the cat, a lot of better mousetraps, just a lot of really cool tech, yeah, that is better than the way we do it. Scale up and go to market in energy and clean tech tends to be a real bear, right? Now, there's also a lot of technologies that... Um, Let's just say they look good on paper, they look good in the lab, and they don't get better when you get to the field and scale them up. They get worse. They're cul-de-sacs. And you know, these Johnny-come-lately investors out there running around basically investing in left, right, and center in every cul-de-sac you can find. It's like they found a neighborhood of Houston developers where you know everybody wants to live on the cul-de-sac. All the investors are headed down all these little cul-de-sacs and like running around in a circle, and they're excited, and they're funding these things, and some of them are just cul-de-sacs, right? But there's a whole bunch of very nice... Yeah, roads running down, right down the middle of that subdivision. They're just going straight. Hmm. And, and, you know, the good news is those are getting funded, and so are a bunch of cul-de-sacs, and so there's a lot of cash. Yeah, if, if you are, like, you know, walk, having to walk uphill both ways to, you know, to, to go to school, right, that's how I feel. Because back in the day, there were no prize competitions with a lot of cash. There were, the government money, you know, for, was, was a fraction of there. The corporates weren't doing CVCs. They weren't doing you know, innovation programs. Yeah, the, raising money was hard. Now, man, what we called a Series A back in the day is now just a seed or sometimes a pre-seed. Things are so big, right? There's more cash than God in this sector, right? But you got to go pick a great technology, you got to figure out a go-to-market on it that makes sense. It's got to be advantage technology for what it's doing. And then you got to have a team that understands this stuff. And we do not have enough people, yeah, especially in the energy sector, where the energy companies, you know, they pay enough to crowd out people out of the sector, right? You just It's hard to go run startup when you're making good money in the oil patch. And so you got a whole bunch of people coming into energy that don't know energy, right? They may know tech. You go to, you go to Texas, people are like, oh, let's go do startups. There are no startups in Texas, or there didn't used to be back in the day. It's, it's changing, but these worlds, the Valley and Texas, they don't even talk. Yeah? Even that's changing, but super, super slow. They don't communicate. They're not building the right product. Yeah? If you think about the way the world works for most of the clean tech you know, businesses, yeah, there's a product which is made in a factory that needs to be at high volume, off of materials, which have all sorts of materials issues, and every materials change you do causes issues in that product, that factory, that manufacturing process that needs to go to market through a project. And that's a lot of projects. And as you know, I mean, think about, you know, from the downhole world, um, projects take time, yeah. right? Well, if these people build in factories and working on the materials, yeah, and, uh, uh, and, and working on the widget and the product or doing the product management, don't understand the project, or the project people look at it and they don't believe how big that factory is going to get and how cheap that factory can make the product because they just, they don't do, Houston, we don't do manufacturing high volume. We do no. projects, right? It's a different world. We do some of it, but it's, you know, you understand what yeah. I mean, right? And so these worlds, even in the functional areas, 
they're talking past each other sometimes. Mm -hmm. So there's super cool opportunities if you understand the various pieces of there, yeah, in that in that value chain. Yeah. It's just like the, the earlier conversation. Well, is there enough lithium? The Salton Sea has enough lithium. Is it pricey to get out? Yes. Is it the Salton Sea in California? Yes, you gotta deal with the Californians. Yeah. But is it a really a fundamental problem? No, it's an artificial problem made up by policymakers, investors, and companies that haven't decided to go build the biggest, most massive refining capacity there at whatever the cost, because we have to do it. And I trust me, if you, you know, do that across the whole Salton Sea, which was created, by the way, by a busted dam off the Colorado River, yeah, um, part of the same problem we're dealing with on the waterways in the West now, you know, 100 years ago, it's, it's like an artificial sea thing, right? So this, this, this whole thing is, is, is somewhat artificial, if depending on the time scale you look at it, right? Um, yeah. So it takes a company like our, you know, my little baby's Omium. You know, they're off building this two gigawatt factory in India. Why? Because India makes a ton of electrochemical engineers, orders of magnitude more than we make here. And you got to have low cost manufacturing because you got to build low cost boxes. And they, you know, have engineered a product that needs to sell through projects. So now they're out partnering with people to sell projects all over the world. Right, so they got hundreds of megawatts of projects announced in country after country after country. Two hundred here, three hundred there, that sort of thing, all over the world. The product doesn't care what market it goes to. Yeah, so where are those electrolyzers going to go? They're going to go where renewable energy is dirt cheap because electrons are the expensive part of electrolysis. Mm -hmm. Right, or they're going to go where renewable energy is dirt cheap relative to the fossil energy making the end product. Like, okay, I want to go make fertilizer. Great. What do you make fertilizer from? It's natural gas. Well, we got natural gas here. It's cheap, except we can sell it for a high price if you can get it to the terminal and ship it over as LNG. If you can't get it to that terminal, it's still cheap. Yeah. And yeah, once you get it to Europe, it's not cheap anymore. Yeah. Right? It's the other side LNG. It's two, three times the price of the landed gas here. So yeah, what about the sun? Is the sun any cheaper in Spain than it is here? It's the same price as Spain in the US or Australia or Spain. Right? It's still two cents a kilowatt hour. I know people no. don't believe it's really two cents. It's two cents, <laughs> right? The rest of it's margin. We're shipping over to a bunch of Chinese companies, a bunch of project developers to throw in EPC to throw some soft costs. That's coming down too, hmm. right? So, but these things, you got to build a factory and they get that whole supply chain up and running and then you sell through projects. So we think this is opportunity. Now, if you think about your Valley of Death funding, so where is the Valley of Death funding? Well, right now it's not at projects. If I've got a ready to go project, there is more people that you can, oh, everybody and their dog wants to fund a low carbon energy transition project. Somebody's quoting the other day that the difference between an oil and gas project ROE requirement and a renewable energy ROE requirement was like 15% versus five. It's like three to one. The investors will pay through the nose to get those renewable energy projects for mm -hmm. one reason or the other. Maybe they're simple or easier. Maybe they're just like them better. Maybe they just don't like oil and gas. Maybe they don't understand. Pick your, it's a supply demand for capital. Plenty of capital there. Plenty of capital to early stage now. Plenty of capital scale of business, right? Not much capital in the development phase, but that's coming, hmm. right? IRA helps with that. You know, people uh, out, out chasing those fairly, those fat and rich yeah, uh, subsidies that we were not actually planning to exist. And all of a sudden the government's going to go yeah. make every competitor of mine look brilliant, you know, regardless of what I do. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. so there are some pockets. Like, if you talk about, hey, where can I not get money? Developers for projects in green, 
they're complaining about lack of cash for that now, but not once the project's ready to go and yeah. not for the manufacturing scale up. Yeah. Early stage where we're playing, there's a lot of cash. There aren't a lot of lead investors that have done it before. Hmm. So we think we've got an advantage there. Yeah. Um, but there's certainly more people like back in the day, you know, it would take literally 30 VC or, or seven, eight VC funds to do a $30 million deal. And those would be the biggest deals in the sector. I know that I can count a, a bunch of those. A company like Slender, do you remember that one, the one that blew up that was making the solar cattle grate? Well, no. they thought it was a solar power module, but it looked like a cattle grate. They were coating SIGs in a circle you know, um, on tubes and putting them into a rack, right? Took down a billion dollars of venture money. Today, what's a billion dollars of venture money? You know, so many more, more companies than you can imagine have been able to take that cash, and a bunch of them are gonna blow up. When Solyndra blew up, it took down, there were like 10 funds that had tapped out in that thing. Wow. Right? It was half the valley, right? Big deal, right? And people'd whine, oh my gosh, got some DOE loan guarantee money, went bust. Who cares? The solar sector now is, what, 10 times, 8 times bigger than it was then? Mm -hmm. The reason Solyndra went bust is because that was a couple buck a watt unit that they thought that was going to be the clearing price. And the real clearing price is a small fraction of that. And they couldn't compete. That's, that's a success dividend. So we're seeing that over and over and over now. But we still got to make more companies. We got to attract more people in. Most of the times when these guys can't raise money, they don't have the right team. Or they're in a cul-de-sac. But frankly, there's so many new investors that don't know what the cul-de-sacs are that a cul-de-sac won't keep you from raising money. It'll just keep you from raising money from me. Um, not having the right team, that's a problem. Hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, and it's hard to get people. How many people have been through energy in startups before, in tech? Why, I did a, actually, I did a study for Royal Dutch. Yeah. Um, uh, basically, they, they had a, a really good question back in the day. Have, has any venture capitalist made money in clean tech? Who has? Where? So, all right. That's a great question. We counted up, I think, about 40 companies that had been venture-backed, that had IPO'd, and 40 companies that were venture-backed that had sold. Total, for above a $50 million exit value. Hmm. Total. That's the universe. Yeah, yeah it's not Up to about big. 2012, 13. So if you think about where the entrepreneurs are coming from these days, well, if you wanted to be successful in a startup, you don't have a very big universe of companies to pull from. Yeah. Some of those guys retired. Some of the people, you know, were, were done. Some of them moved on to their jobs. So how many founders spun out of that? So we're now seeing some of the successes where we've got guys that have been through it before. Um, and you're seeing new people come in that have just out of school trying to launch things. Yeah. But getting a full team the right technical person, the inventor, sales guy, a CEO who can ball. Yeah, it's hard to find all that in one spot. So a lot of what we see is recruiting problems. So all I need right now, all I need for our little children, and you judge venture capital, a, 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 a cow by its calf, right? And you judge venture capitalists by their startups and their founders. Yeah. So all I need for my little children is more and better people. As many of them as we can get. We are always, always dying for people. Um. always open job ads, just desperate to get people. Electrochemists is one example. You can't get enough electrochemists. 
it's a full employment act for electrochemists. Back in the day, electrochemists would go become you know, um, uh, you know, doctors and whatever, anything, because there's no jobs in electrochemistry. Now, we're short those, an order of magnitude short in electrochemists wow. in this country. Wow. You still having fun, Joe? Can so we this talk is, about geothermal yet? So this is a, a recruiting problem. The whole, yes. the whole situation. It's a, a founding, a founder formation problem, getting the right teams to kind of jump together around a, a good piece of tech and a good problem statement. Yeah. But again, yep. that's usually the right teams, right? And then it's a recruiting problem to get the technical and the, and, and the sales talent in there. Like, oh, I'll give you a simple one. Product management. Texas doesn't do product management. The coasts do product management. Consumer does product management. Telecom, SaaS, great product managers there, right? Texas, we do projects, not products, remember? So now, but now we're trying to make products to sell the projects. And we've got products and components selling the products, building more products to sell the projects. But there are no product managers, right? In energy, right? Yeah. My partner, Craig, is a product manager. He's one of like the very few. And he kind of just fell into it way back in the day. Right, so so that's like just one fun, interesting skill set. Is just like wow, we're short on that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the uh, uh, it's um, project developers. Think about a hydrogen project today. Okay, I've got a downstream kind of problem. I'm really selling a gas or a chemical, right? Yep. The interest, the project itself is very midstreamy, right? There's pipes, compressors, tanks. It's midstreamy. Now, those two worlds are not the same worlds as, as, as you yeah. know, right? The whole economics of the project is a power problem. 70% of the cost of electrolysis yeah. is roughly sort of, depending on the little pieces, is electron cost. Yeah. So you got a power economics dominating a midstream construction project -y problem with a downstream sales problem, where the hell are you going to get a team that knows all those things that has been through a startup before? Yeah. Right? Now imagine I'm making something to sell to those people who don't exist in that paradigm. So with our Omium guys, and mm -hmm. I, I use my own our, our little children's examples because it's great, um, I begged and begged and begged. I got them to come down to Houston. And to their credit, they brought the whole management team down. And we sat in this room over at the Ion, just across the street here. And um, uh, we just brought company after company through to meet them. And when I said, I said, look, you know, I just need you all to come meet oil patch people, energy people. And I need them to meet you because you got to talk together. And I, I think they had like, you know, 12 meetings and 10 NDAs yeah, out of those meetings within a week. I mean, it was just, mm. yeah, and just working projects and stuff because the business is there to do. But the worlds weren't really communicating because everybody has their own job to do in life. Yeah. yeah. Can we talk wow. about geothermal yet? Well, so we no. are... We're out of time. We can't we talk are, about geothermal. We're running out of time. You're I want to get to my now. final questions. Fine. So I just have a few final questions I ask everybody. The last one, you get to ask me a question. We can talk about geothermal then. The first question there being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? So, I'm a libertarian, remember? I believe that everybody should be required to read Robert Heinlein and Louis L'Amour, all of them. All of them. You said Robert Heinlein? Robert Heinlein, yeah, you know, science fiction. Stranger in a Strange Land, Friday, all the cool books. These young books, 
And then the Westerns. And I know none of that's politically popular anymore, but that's okay. So of all of those... But if you're going to play in energy, you better read the prize. That's Daniel Jurgen's like quintessential history of the energy sector. It's dated now, right? Because you know it was written yeah you know, well back a few years, decades ago. So it kind of only really goes through the seventies, eighties. But so it doesn't really catch the power sector and what's happened the last couple of decades. But if you don't understand the history of the oil companies, the history of the oil energy industry, and how this stuff's put together, and you're trying to go disrupt it, you're nuts. Yeah. Well, those are. A lot of recommendations. It sounds like a lot of books to read. I think so. That'll keep my listeners busy. They're not going to read them. (laughs) The next question, when will we be net zero as a society? When? So you want me to give you one of those decade things that everybody's trying to sign up to? That or or your interpretation. we, We don't have a problem getting CO2 out of the economy. Right. Um, We have um, when we're ready, we're going to take care of it. I'm a big optimist. I believe this is an exponential curve and we are going to pound the ever living hell out of CO2 anytime we're ready. This isn't a, we don't even have to do it at high cost. We're actually on the high cost path. We're going to take it out at about the most expensive cost per ton you can imagine, but we don't have to. Think about some of the technologies we've talked about in electrolysis and and uh, um, and and green electrons and 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 rewriting grids and there's a lot of ways to do it. What we're doing, unfortunately, today, uh, Copenhagen failed. The COPs failed. Kyoto failed. We did not get a single price of carbon. We have no carbon market. So as a result, we have a thousand prices of carbon. It's like we have a fractured market. So every little policy and every subsidy and every you know, product push that is green effectively has kind of an embedded price of CO2 in it. And those embedded prices have no relation to each other anymore. There's no way to link those markets because they're, they're, they're quota policy demand or, yeah, or, 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 or consumer driven. And so we're doing things in the wrong order, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes and we're not even doing things in the order that knocks the gigatons first, and we're definitely not doing things in the order that knocks the, um, the, the cost per ton in the least cost path, in a loading order, right? So I think it's a little silly to go try and decarbonize every location at once. Like, why would you do that? You would go, if, if you're the, the climate does not care. CO2 is the imperial yeah, um, uh, uh, pollutant here. It does not care where in the world it goes in or comes out. Yep. If we don't solve the trade problem with China around greenhouse gases, yeah, it, it doesn't matter what we do here. We we can't the climate can't win. So we need we need these markets linked. So it is it is a little inane to go to your highest cost carbon locations and your highest cost of carbon abatement processes and knock them now. Screw it. We'll knock those in 2040. Go knock all the big, massive ones and the low-hanging fruit first. But our policies are backwards. I believe if we had gotten Kyoto yeah, uh, replaced at Copenhagen, yeah, uh, which basically meant a trade deal between Brazil, China, India, and the U.S., had that gotten done, we do not have a CO2 problem today. We're not talking about it. You and I have moved on to other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, We failed to get our policy right. And now we've left it to fragmented policies, fragmented prices. 
Yeah, and so we're still asking questions like, well, when are we going to get to net zero? Well, shit, we'd have been there if we'd bothered to get a single price of carbon. Until we get that, it's going to be a while. It's going to be pricey. So until we get an actual single price of carbon, which you're probably never going to get, the question really boils down to when you spend enough money to do it the hard, expensive way, because that's the path we're on. I'm going to do well. All my little startups going to do well. The climate would have been happier if we took a single price of carbon and went and knocked things out in the uh, path of least cost. Yep. Okay. Very interesting answer. Very, very, very well thought out. And I, I, I appreciate the candor and, and all. We can talk about geothermal so now. So now you get to ask me a question. All right. All right. Okay. So we're interested in geothermal. All We've been right. talking as companies doing geothermal. Oh man, it seems hard. Yeah. So um, what I want to know, I, I need to know what to fund in geothermal. I need to know it, what process, what makes sense for me to go do. What makes sense for uh-huh. you to go do? Like what process, what pathway? Yeah. I mean, downhole scares me as a clean tech guy because usually when you go downhole, you can't see it. You don't know what's there. It's a pain, right? And there's not very much money in the power as there is in that hydrocarbon, right? Per unit of foot drilling or however you want to define it. And so the projects look skinny and challenging, but it's so super cool. And if I owned a geothermal asset right now, I'd be making a lot of money. Like it's a full employment act for anybody who already owns one, just yeah. like it is for hydro or pumped hydro. But what do we do? I mean, hot rock was a hot topic a long time ago. You know, there, there's been, this has been a thing for a long time. Geothermal heat pumps and houses... Where can I go make money in this sector? Yeah, that is a... Or what can I fund to go build a thousand of to go make money in this sector? Yeah, so that is... That's a really, really tough question. You don't have it. There's... You don't have an answer for me? I, I've got, I've it got says, thoughts. lead geothermal geoscientists on your card, so yes. you better have an answer for me. Yes, so, so there are... There's a lot of different technologies out there being... being developed right now a lot of these are the easiest way to put it is that think of the hardest oil and gas well that's been drilled and now triple the complexity triple the depth yeah i got that problem statement i need to know what to go do to fix that problem statement yeah so i think that is that i think is what we're still trying to figure out because something like better no 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 no, 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 hang on hang on hang on hang on so yeah, I want a geothermal deal in my portfolio. All right. You got to tell me what I need to go bet on. Which pathway, what is interesting here? You don't have to tell me the name of a company. In terms I want to know what technology, what technical path, what approach I need to go bet on. As in which which arm of geothermal? Which arm of geothermal, what little process, cycle, whatever, you know, resource. I don't care. Just give me a give me a strategy to go bet on so I can fund one. They all look hard to me. Yes. So they all are hard. The and to keep evading the question, I would say just <laughs> bet on bet on bet on super hot rock. Bet on something in So it's kind of like E and P. It's you know, it's it's all about the rock. Well that- it it is all about the rock. Well, but, well and you said bet on sedimentary systems. But to your point, they're there's heat everywhere. It's just a matter of being able to produce it. So super hot rock is drilling down into the basement very deep 
And the idea there is that you're going from a 150 degree Celsius resource up to a 500 Celsius resource. And now you are producing supercritical fluids and you're increasing your energy density by 10. Okay. So that idea is a a big push right now. So why has that not gotten done? Because we have to drill 20 kilometer, 10 to 20 kilometers in granite. That, that that that's a long well. That's that's tough to do. Yeah. And and 20 kilometers is a bit of an exaggeration, but depending on where you are, but not really. It actually is 20 kilometers to hit 500 C. So it is in hard deep, rock. In hard rock. So there are so multiple different Do you think this that resource can beat solar on cost? I think that yes. I mean, I I would have I would have switched out of geothermal if I didn't think that geothermal well, you might was just the like answer. It. It's fun. It is a lot of fun. But when it comes to and this this you may have a different opinion on, but in my view, solar plus batteries is always is going to be more expensive. And unless we figure out all of that project management standpoint, scaling up the mining, scaling up all of the processing, scaling up all of that and doing that in a better way, solar plus batteries is going to be more expensive than geothermal. Now, there's some other ideas on how you combine things. So how so that cheap can I get the, the LCOE or the power, however you want to think about it, off a geothermal system at scale? At scale. Define scale any way you want. I don't care. I don't even scale, care what part of the country works. I would say, and depending on the technology, bit of a wide range, but I think some things that, that my company's working on, we think we can get it down to 50 to $60 a megawatt hour for traditional hydrothermal plants, like the best ones out there are like 20 to $30 a megawatt hour. Uh, well, LCOE, the cheapest ones currently being installed are $40 a megawatt hour. The so solar and wind already passed that now. So all I'm really getting is firm dispatchable. You're getting, you're getting firm dispatchable. And I think the hard part there is that you have to include the batteries in that solar calculation. If you're not including the batteries, but then... Or I got to go sell the Europeans. <laughs> or that. But I think the you need to have... By having firm power, you, you don't necessarily need to think about all of the other complexities. So I now should I think, think about it is, as a as a firm power generator. I should not think about it as trying to as a, as a uh, to beat renewables, wind and solar on cost. Yeah, and I think that understanding and and figuring out how to do that metric, that is, I think that that's the problem for the majority of the geothermal industry is that we have value there that we are not properly communicating. Fair enough, but it's a little hard to go. I mean, my buddy is doing solar. He's like, hey, people won't even take a low four-cent PPA right now in solar in the U.S. because they know the costs are about to collapse as soon as supply chain stuff's you know, kind of worked through. And so the bid ask on those developments, and that's the price you say you can get to on this stuff. But when you look at something like California right now and right now with the grid and with everything they've got, they're willing to pay 
10 to 15 cents a kilowatt Yeah, but whatever you thought you were going to make in a, in a geothermal system in Texas, take that price, multiply times three in California, you got to build in California. It's like 18 years to get the permit. So yes and no. A lot of that, a lot of that is actually built in Nevada and being ah, over transmission lines selling stuff to across California. Selling the border to California. That's a good business. Now that that is where it's at. Okay. So right. it's not all built in California, but it in California they are willing to pay significantly for that base load yes, firm they power. Are. And that's my big question: Is that going to become? Are people going to accept that? And are they all going to be wanting to pay more for firm baseload? Or is something like grid management software and distributed energy and battery backups, are those going to be developed fast enough that that baseload truly is dead? Because that's, hmm. a, that's a comment that I've heard sometimes, and every time it gets scoffed at. So, I mean, is baseload dead? I think you have to think about it different, right? If you have a resource, if your least cost resource is solar and wind, their marginal cost is zero, right? Their average cost is on the floor. Yeah, but they run when they're going to run. So yeah. when they're on the grid, you run them because they're the least cost resource by far. It's yeah. zero. Yeah, if you don't have them, you need to firm them up right? Of some sort, or you yep. need to match load and matching load is hard. And some of this is a rerouting problem. Yeah. But so I think, I think you flip it. I think the world is no longer base load and peakers because in this world, renewables, yeah, excluding geothermal, right? Are, uh, and are, are, they look like a peaker, but they're base load, right? They got a curve that looks like a peaker curve, even yeah. though it's, yeah, you, you don't get to choose it. It happens. Yeah. Right. Whereas a peaker, you make that curve on purpose. And so you're filling in shoulders in interesting, more interesting ways. And the question is always just like with storage, what's the least amount you can get away with on storage to make it work? I think that's the question on baseload today is, mm -hmm. well, what do you need to firm? Because firm dispatchable is, is everything. Yeah. Yeah. And if I'm the climate, yeah, I'll go put a mountain of coal over there. And I'll shovel it in just when I need it. And I just won't burn very much of it, except for a few hours a year. And it gives me my storage and all that. And then I'll run every renewable electron I can and route them around each other. And then drop batteries where I can de-bottleneck and where I can you know, smooth out peaks. And I can run a really interesting grid. But that's not, if you want net zero, or I'll do the same with gas, or gas and CCS, or any number of combos, if I'm trying to get to a least cost lowest carbonish grid if i'm trying to get to net zero or deploy renewables or do whatever the puc says then i don't have that luxury now so one of our big questions has been is um and nuclear is the same way and fusion yeah. which is super super awesome cool by the way um do people really need that fixed level of firm dispatchable renewable or should we be doing it a different way or is it the policies that are pushing us in these directions mm. and of course since we live in a policy driven world it may not matter if it's cheaper to do it another way that may be the way we ought to go and the technology we ought to develop. Geothermal yeah. has the advantage of being super cool and it's everywhere if you can get deep enough, but 20 miles, that's a long well. Well, kilometers. Yeah. A little bit less. I'm, I'm, I'm a Texan. <laughs> we can't spell kilometers. Yeah, it's hard to spell. Well, <laughs> I think... <laughs> I think we are over on time. There's still a lot to cover. So I think that 
your co-founder is going to be on one of our other shows, ESG Reenergized. Yeah, he should go talk about ESG. Yeah, so he can talk about all the ESG and kind of the the rest of the story with Energy Transition Ventures. But before we sign off, is there anything else that you would like to say? Look, we're open for business. We're, you know, sit over in our office, bored, twiddling our thumbs, talking to our, our founders, you know, trying to sell stock in their companies, find them customers, find them people, and find more deals to do. So we, we need founders to come show up on our doorstep and, and let us beg them to put some money in. All right. You heard that, all you founders and out there. We should put in one more plug because we're sitting here at Greentown Labs in Houston, which is a super awesome place. And I was over here at a conference and these podcasters show up and they're like, hey, we need to do a podcast. So these guys gave us the room here to work out of today. We really ought to put our little plug in for, for them. They're actually running a transportation conference you know, right, right on the other side of the wall there that we can all go hang out and watch. All right. You heard that. Greentown Labs and Energy Transition Ventures reach out to them and find all the goodies. So with that, thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and let me know you're enjoying it by leaving a review. If you want to hear more great energy stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with OGGN on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.